Hi, and welcome back to the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, the podcast that shares ideas and inspires change for a better and more sustainable world for all. And I'm your host, Dilara Salahova. Elephants, tigers, mangas, gibbons, bears, and multiple other big and small species, this is all wildlife. According to the WWF, in about 40-50 years, we have lost about 65% of the wildlife. The situation is dangerous all over the world, with animals being poached and killed due to wild animal trade and nature-human conflicts, but also withdrawn from their natural habitat and mistreated for tourism and entertainment purposes. Multiple organizations of wildlife protection, conservation and rewilding are fighting to protect beautiful species around the globe from extinction. But they're also fighting another battle to get funding for their activities. Each of us can be a force for good, because every now and then we interact with wildlife, as a tourist, for example. And it is important for us to know how to make this interaction the most beneficial for both sides, how to be a respectful tourist, how to contribute to the protection of the wildlife while on vacations, how to choose an ethical center of wildlife, what are the dangers that wildlife is facing in Cambodia and Southeast Asia, and who is it been to wrong? We will discuss all these and other questions with my amazing guest, Alicia Northcott. Alicia is a coordinator for Care for Rescued Wildlife Tour program at Wildlife Alliance in Cambodia. Hi, Alicia. Very welcome to the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast. It's really my pleasure to have you and discuss about wildlife and animals protection. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You're working for Wildlife Alliance in Cambodia. Can you tell me how does your typical day look like? Yeah, my main role is wildlife tour coordinator and education team member. My main role is showing tourists around our rescue center. My day usually starts at 7.30 in the morning, preparing the van, and then we meet the guests at 8 a.m. Then we travel to the rescue center. It takes about an hour and a half from Phnom Penh, um, south, 38 kilometers to the rescue center. And then we meet the animals with the guests. So we start with the elephants usually, and then the tiger. And then if we have time before lunch, we see the bears. But usually we we chat a bit with the guests and, and end up going straight to lunch. And then we can see the bears after lunch. After that, we usually fit in the nursery to see what adorable baby animals we have uh, rescued in the nursery. And then after that, we see how everyone feels, what, what the temperature is. Sometimes people are a bit tired because of the heat. Then we come back to Phnom Penh or we carry on if we've got time and, and people have energy to see a few different animals. There's more than 100 species at Phnom Penh, so it's hard to see everyone in one day. And what is this rescue center? What does it do? Yes, yeah, so um, the main project I work for is Care for Rescued Wildlife. And that project involves rescuing animals from the illegal wildlife trade in Cambodia. So if they have any, if they need any rehabilitation or if they need a permanent home, they are housed at Phnom Tamau at our rescue center. So we have animals there that are staying kind of temporarily, like a 
kind of hotel. They're there for a bit of recovery. A lot of animals are quite dehydrated and they're quite stressed from being trafficked in the illegal wildlife trade. So we let them rest up and feed them up, give them any vet treatment if they need, and then they can be taken to a suitable location for release. Um, if the animal needs permanent care, we we have many different specialized enclosures for different species and we committed for we're committed to looking after them uh, for their whole lives. What is the current situation with the wildlife around the world and in the region? The international wildlife trade is one of the biggest trades in the world, the biggest illegal trades in the world. The annual value of the illegal wildlife trade worldwide, where in 2016 it was estimated to be worth between 7 and 23 billion US dollars. And that was in 2016, so that's already seven years old. So I assume it's, it's even more than that now, unfortunately, driven by lots of different demands, traditional medicine for pets, jewelry, yeah, decoration, fashion as well is a big one. Unfortunately, there are so many different pressures on, on wildlife. It's going to take a lot of education, I think, to stop the this increase. And hopefully it's not too late. And so you're saying that it's getting worse over time? I think possibly, yeah, things seem to be as more, especially as more of the forest is is lost, more of the forest then becomes accessible to the poachers. So they're easier to get into the forest once there's access points. So logging roads and kind of electricity ro pylons that go through the forest, that creates an easy pathway for the poachers through the forest so they can access parts that previously were not accessible. Do you have statistics how many animals have been lost due to the illegal trade? Um, so, so the amount of habitat that the tigers can live in is decreased by 93%. So there's only 7% of their suitable habitat left for them to live in. It's no surprise that there's only around 4,000 left in the wild now, Southeast Asia. What are the countries where you have tigers? You don't have them in Cambodia, no? Unfortunately, not anymore. They're uh, not anymore. Extinct since 2000, or classified as extinct since 2007. The last one was on a camera trap, 2007. Okay. Their decline was very rapid. Wildlife Alliance has a project to reintroduce tigers back into Cambodia, um, but it will be the Bengal tiger from India rather than the Indo-Chinese tiger. And I think it's going to be really, really good if it's successful, really good for the view of the country and for protecting the forest in the area and bringing a lot of value to the forest where the tigers will be uh, standing instead of um, selling it off. So you mentioned this word that tigers will, will bring value to the forest. What is this value? So the tigers are known as, as an umbrella species. Also, tigers are quite publicly appealing. If we can support the government to successfully release them into the wild, politically, it looks really good for them. So they see the value in protecting the forest that way for tourism, for lots of international relations. Um, it's really, really good. Um, it's also great for local people who perhaps the tourists will come to go into the forest to try and see the tigers um, and they will use local services and ecotourism sites to stay in. So it brings value that way. Um, but also because they are uh, an apex predator, by protecting them and protecting the forest for them to live, all of this other species are also protected. So all of their prey species and the 
the species that their prey species would eat. So all of the plants and the trees as well, the habitat where the tigers would live, um, and their main prey species, kind of sambar deer and the wild pigs, they're all being protected as a result of the tigers being there. And in terms of the ecosystem role, what is the role of tigers? So tigers are the, the biggest predator in Cambodia. They are an apex predator. So they ambush, hunt their prey. So they have to get within two meters of their prey um, to hunt their prey. And then they're really, really important for controlling populations of of pigs and deer. Um, so they keep the balance uh, of the, the herbivores and the pressures on the plants as a result if there was too many herbivores in the area. Okay. But tigers are also dangerous for people. Uh, does it mean that the area will be enclosed and protected and people will be prevented from just going to the forest and walking around? So it's really the protection area? The area where the tigers are being released is a protected area in that nobody should be in there if they don't have the Ministry of Environment ranges with them anyway. So no one should actually be in there and, and get near to where the tigers are being released. Uh, but also all of the tigers will be wearing tracking collars so we can see exactly where they're going. They shouldn't be near any villages unless there's a problem. So unless they're very, very hungry, then they will feel desperate enough to go near the villages. But in that time, we would be able to see them from their tracking collar and intervene to make sure that no nothing happens um, in that respect. Uh, are there other animals that uh, are the brink of extinction? Pangolin, the Sun Sunda pangolin is the native pangolin species in Cambodia. Um, many people know pangolins now because of uh, there was a lot of press about their possible link with COVID. That was disproven, but it does show that interacting with wildlife on this level, on, on eating it and keeping it as pets, is very, very dangerous in terms of introducing another pandemic to the world. Some great facts for the wildlife trade. So 23.5 tons of pangolin parts were trafficked in 2021 alone. And when you consider that the biggest pangolin species from Africa is 20 kilos, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pangolins. And that's probably only what has been confiscated as well. So there's probably a great deal percentage more that hasn't even been confiscated and has been successfully traded. One million pangolins have been estimated to have been poached in the last decade. So the populations of pangolins are decreasing very, very fast. In fact, Nobody has actually had time to make an estimate of the populations of pangolins in the wild. Their critically endangered IUCN red list status is based purely on how many are being taken out of the forest. Uh, that a million pangolins taken from the forest in the last decade cannot be sustainable for their populations. Uh, and they are classed as the world's most trafficked non-human mammal. Oh, wow. And what are they used for? So their meat is used as a delicacy. So it's a, an exotic meat or a status symbol to put on the table. It's, it's seen as impressive to put on the table uh, to show your guests that you can afford to buy a pangolin to, to feed your guests. The scales are used in traditional medicine. The scales are actually just exactly the same material as your fingernails and toenails. So it's, it's nothing special. And also their skin is used in leather, so for fashion particularly in the States, actually, the, the leather is in demand for uh, shoe leather. That's horrible. Yeah. 
And how are usually the animals caught? Are they killed immediately with weapons or are there other instruments? So the most common method for catching animals from the forest worldwide at the moment is snares. Um, snares are just uh, a loop of um, material, usually wire or nylon string. Poachers will dig a hole and they'll place the snare around the hole. Uh, basically, when the animal steps in the hole, they get trapped in the snare and it gets tighter and tighter around their, usually one of their legs, but it could be their neck. Uh, for elephants, it can be their trunk as well. Mm -hmm. The poachers commonly in this region, specifically in Southeast Asia, they use blanket snaring, which means laying 200 snares in a day in a very small area basically to catch every single animal in that area. So they're non-selecting, they're going to catch everything that whose foot or body part can fit in that snare. And the animal can die a really, really horrible death. If they don't die um, from dehydration or starvation, they're going to die from the infection of the wound. Some animals, if they're strong enough, so the larger cattle species in Cambodia, the gaua and the banteng, and elephants as well, they're strong enough to break the snare away from whatever it was attached to. So they will be left with a snare wound on their leg that will just fester and get infected. And eventually, they're, if they're lucky, it will heal up. Um, but usually they, they just get weaker and weaker. They can't keep up with their herd and they, they die a very slow, horrible death. And that's if they break away from the snare. Often poachers won't come back and check all of their snares. So the animal would, will die in the snare for absolutely no reason. And the worst part is it's really hard to catch somebody that's laying a snare because you never, you, it's very rare for you to catch someone who's actually putting the snare down. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have enough rangers to be able to sit there and wait for the poacher to come back to the snare. So our rangers just focus on collecting the snares from the forest. Um, at Wildlife Alliance, our rangers have collected 300,000 snares since 2001 from the protected area. Each one of those represents an animal's life saved because they are fatal. They can be fatal to most animals. WWF estimated that Southeast Asia has, oh, sorry, not even Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam have possibly 12 million snares present in protected areas. Ooh. So that's really, really scary. Um, and yeah. The, yeah, the snares can catch anything and they can set them up to, to catch everything from a, a mouse deer, which is about this big, up to a gawa, which is uh, 1.5 tons. Um, and you have a successful story of an elephant saved from a snare. Yes. yes, true. So at our rescue center, one of our ambassador elephants is, uh, he's called Chuk, and he has a prosthetic leg. He was actually found by the WWF in 2007, up in the northeast of Cambodia. WWF, at the time, they were just counting the numbers of elephants in the forest. So they didn't have a vet team or anything. So we stepped in to help out and managed to rescue him and bring him to Phnom Tamao to live. Now he's had 23 prosthetic legs so far, and he's Cambodia's only elephant with a prosthetic leg. Now he's 17 years old, so it's a great uh, success story in that he's, he's managed to survive and thrive at Phnom Tamao. How does usually the animals get into Wildlife Alliance Rescue Centre? 
Do you have your own teams who save the animals? Yep, so we have, um, we call it our wildlife rapid rescue team. And the team is made up of um, Ministry of, uh, sorry, Forestry Administration uh, officials, military police and our staff for technical support. Um, and they investigate um, wildlife trafficking, whether it's in restaurants or um, for the pet trade or in uh, for traditional medicine. They will investigate online and in person. And we also have informants that we use. So they go undercover into markets and restaurants to find out if they're selling, if people are selling uh, wildlife parts. And um, then the team can go in. And because we work with the government officials and the police, they have the power to arrest and confiscate on the spot. So the law in Cambodia is really, really good. The law uh, is that it's illegal to buy, sell, eat or keep any native species. So it's really good, especially when you compare to other uh, countries, the neighboring countries. Um, it's very kind of black and white and easy to explain to people. Um, so the, the team enforces that law basically, and then they can, they work all across the country And we also work in conjunction with other NGOs and organizations as well. So up in the Northeast, there are other organizations like BirdLife International and WWF who are doing forestry protection. So if they confiscate any animals from people, we can go and pick them up um, and give them the rehabilitation they need or the permanent home that they need at Phnom Tamao. So our team, yeah, they work really, really hard 24-7 all across the country to rescue the animals from the, the illegal wildlife trade and with the main end goal of releasing them back into the into protected areas where they can get a second chance at life in the wild. What does it take to release an animal? Can you release any animal? It really, really depends on the species. It depends on the uh, individual as well. And it depends on the area. At Phnom Tamao, we have permanent residents um, We have 1,300 animals living there permanently, and they're usually there for one or a combination of the following three reasons, which are kind of main reasons why animals can't be released. So the first one is if they have permanent physical or mental disability. So some of the animals have been caught in hunting traps, so they have limbs missing, or some of them have been Uh, kept in very small cages, so they have some kind of mental symptoms as a result of the stress they've experienced in the cages. Um, those animals would not be doing what they need to do in the wild to keep themselves alive. So we can't release those ones back. They wouldn't have the best chance. Um, the second reason is if they're too habituated to humans. So many animals, if they've been, especially if they've been kept as a pet, They've learned to associate humans with comfort and with food. Um, we can't be releasing animals that are looking to humans for any, any of their basic needs um, because they will seek out humans once they've been released and they can get themselves into trouble again um, or get themselves into the same situation. Uh, and if it's a dangerous animal, then they're going to get the local people are going to be in danger. So we don't want to release those back into the wild if they can cause any harm to local people. And then the third reason is if we don't think it's safe in the wild at the moment. Cambodia's got one of the fastest rates of deforestation in the world, 
20% forest loss in the last 20 years. So there's certain species, the large herbivores, for example, the banteng, the gaur, their habitat is disappearing too fast. We don't think it would be right to release the ones we have at Penumtamau back into the wild. Um, and they would just get themselves into trouble on, on people's uh, farmland and things like that. So we don't want to risk that as well. And do you uh, rescue animals that uh, are losing their habitat? Only if they get themselves into trouble. So if they've got themselves into trouble on people's farmland, um, we will try to relocate them. Um, but it's often that they have wounds from snares or from the local people trying to scare them off that they need a bit of rehabilitation. So we will take them to Penumtama. And what are the main reasons that people get into this conflict with the wildlife? Is it money? Is it the protection of their own area that, that where they harvest food, etc.? I think uh, initially the kind of human-animal interaction mostly was from people um, taking the animals for sustenance. So... Uh, a few kind of deers or wild pigs here and there to feed their family. Now more recently, kind of in the last 20, 30 years, where there's been an increase in demand for animals in the uh, pet trade and for traditional medicine, there's been more the increase in demand for trading them on rather than just consuming them yourself. Um, it has mean the, meant that the value of the animal has gone increased. Um, so people are more likely to poach them to sell to make the money. And then uh, secondarily, I guess, is, is if they're encroaching on crops and things like that. So if there's a lot of sugarcane plantations in Cambodia, so the farmers will put snares around their sugarcane plantations to, to trap the animals to, to make them stop coming to eat the sugarcane. Okay, but I imagine the the reason why the animals are coming to the sugarcane plantations is because of the loss of the habitat in the first place. Yes, so it's yeah, it's a bit cyclical, and yeah, we're working with communities. Part of what Wildlife Alliance does is working with communities to try and form barriers to stop the animals coming in, rather than the people snaring them. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the actions that Wildlife Alliance is taking? So Wildlife Alliance has quite a holistic approach. Um, we have many, many different projects to help combat conservation. Um, conservation does need to be combated from many different angles. So we have uh, our education team, which is Cooper Express. They've managed to reach over 200,000 people who are living around protected areas to teach them about conservation and biodiversity in Cambodia and get them passionate about protecting the forest um, rather than exploiting natural resources. Uh, we have our law enforcement team, as I spoke about the wildlife rapid rescue team, but also we have our rangers in the forest as well. So we have, I think at the moment, 15 different ranger stations. So over 150 rangers in the forest and again, they're military police and uh, government officials as well, as well as our team doing technical support. Uh, they're protecting 1.5 million hectares of rainforest in the southeast of Cambodia, uh, southwest of Cambodia, sorry. We have the Care for Rescued Wildlife. And more recently, kind of one of the youngest projects is community conservation support. So um, basically our head keeper from Phnom Tamao has 
quite a big online presence. If you find him online, he's Sitang Dry, Wildlife Care on Facebook. And people were contacting him saying, oh, we're protecting this small population of of uh, Bantain, for example, which is a wild cow species. And they have been doing so for the last 20 years, um, but they were getting no support from anybody. So we found a few communities like that where we can support them now with with uh, motorbikes and rice uh, radios um, and more kind of technical support to make to improve their efficiency of the the patrols as well. So we they're protected in terms of uh, physical safety, so that there is no poaching or anything. Yeah, so they're patrolling the forest. Um, so they're patrolling to make sure there's nobody in the forest that shouldn't be, uh, or doing anything that they shouldn't be. So some of these forests, especially the community forests, people can come in to collect mushrooms and fallen wood, flowers and fruits, that kind of thing. Um, it's quite obvious if somebody's doing that, or if they're carrying a gun and they've got dogs with them that's kind of a different intent. So they will, will speak to them and tell them to, to leave um, and not to, to hunt the animals. Um, they'll also clear snares as well from the forest. Mm-hmm. And so these communities, so they do it uh, like purely on the voluntary basis and they make no money. Out of yeah, it. yeah, exactly. Yeah, these are just guys that are really passionate about the wildlife in Cambodia already. So they're the people we really want to foster the the support with. Is there a way to link the protection of the wildlife and also to make a living out of it? Because uh, we have a limited number of people who are ready to do it voluntarily. And we actually want to foster and educate people who can do it and also live with it. Yeah, that's great. That kind of leads us on to the the ecotourism and the sustainable tourism with wildlife. So tourism is a great way to enable local people to, to financially benefit from the wildlife and the natural resources and see the benefit from protecting it financially, but also seeing the the wonder of, that people get when they come to the forest, uh, see how amazed people are by seeing the, the gibbons swinging through the trees and the tiny little mushrooms and everything from the tiny little things to the, to the big things. Seeing that passion in someone that's come thousands of miles to... to see that wildlife really, really helps local people understand the wider importance of, of their forest that they think is kind of normal, I guess. Uh, is it something that you're also trying to develop or educate in this sense? We have some several ecotourism sites. We have Chipat Ecotourism Site and Chayarang, and both of them have lots of different activities um, fully led by local people. Um, so they can see, yeah, how amazed people are by the beauty and the um, waterfalls, especially at this time of year as well. What are the principles of the sustainable tourism? Because tourism actually can bring also a lot of troubles. Yes, of course. Yeah, it has to be done in balance. Um, and there's three main principles. So the first one is to use the environmental resources without detrimental impact. So using the key resources that are needed to make the tourism work without overusing them and depleting them for future. The second one is to maintain the 
the kind of cultural heritage and identity of the local people. So embracing the different foods that the people have, the different traditions they have in the forest with the different plants and the different animals and things like that, the different stories they have from from the animals and sometimes the spirits in the forest and things like that. So um, embracing those stories and, and telling them to tourists so that they can feel more connected with the people and the natural resources as well. Uh, and then the, the final main goal, I guess, for, for sustainable tourism is alleviating poverty. So using the tourism to long-term alleviate poverty in the area to decrease the need for people to go into the forest and use the natural resources because they are poor and they have to. Yeah, and from the point of view of a tourist, what would be sustainable tourism be? So a few things, yeah, to look for when you're looking for sustainable tourism is looking that the local people are involved. Um, check that your where your guide is coming from. Check where the cook is from. Check if they are affiliated with NGOs. Um, often on the websites at the bottom, you'll see supported by, and there's a lot of really big ones that are easy to recognize, like WWF. For example, uh, Disney actually have a really big wildlife fund. So these ones are quite recognizable that you can look for um, when you're looking to visit somewhere to make sure that it is sustainable and not kind of greenwashing or anything like that. Can you give a couple of names of such centers around the Cambodia and the Southeast Asia? Specifically with wildlife ones, for example, we've got Jahu, which is in Mondulkiri, Senmonorom in Cambodia. They are gibbon gibbon watching uh, experience. Basically, you can go out into the forest. They're supported by WCS and WWF and Disney as well. That's actually where I came up with that example because I went on their website to have a look. Um, but they also are supporting the local communities. So your guides are local guys. Um, sometimes with these things, your guides will be ex-poachers. So you're really, really seeing the difference you're making because they're not poaching anymore. They don't need to poach anymore. They've got sustainable income, reliable income, and they can see the, the wonder that people have in the animals alive and in the forest, in the natural setting, rather than taking them from the wild. But because they're poachers, they're really good at finding the animals. <laughs> um, so they make great guides. Um, and Jahu also have a fund for local people to be able to take corporations to court if they're taking their land. So they often don't have the official paperwork for their land because they've been there for so many years. Um, but Uh, they often also don't have the money or the kind of technical knowledge to be able to take the corporations to court if they want to cut down their forest to plant sugarcane, for example. They then have that funds and those that technical advice to uh, protect their forest. Uh, and specifically the Benong people are animist, so the forest means a lot mm -hmm. to them. Other ones, uh, I've put Elephant Nature Park in Thailand, Um, that's a place where you can go and see elephants doing elephant stuff, um, but they're all rescued from working in tourism or logging. So they've all been, they're all kind of in retirement, but crucially you can just observe them. So you go into the forest and you watch them 
doing all the things that elephants are supposed to do and nothing that they don't have to do anymore. So they don't have to do the logging, they don't have to do shows, they don't have to carry people. Um, they're really, really good. I guess one more would be Kulen Elephant Park. In 2019, the government in Cambodia made it illegal for elephant riding at Angkor Wat, which is really, really great move. I was a bit worried about what would happen to the elephants because elephants are expensive to keep. And usually if you're not earning money with them, it's hard to raise enough money to feed them and to provide them with medical care that they need. Um, but the Kulen Elephant Park is, is amazing. It's similar to the Elephant Nature Park in that you can go and, and see them doing kind of normal elephant stuff in the forest. They don't have to do elephant riding anymore. Um, and you can interact with them by making enrichment and snacks for them and see them using those rather than actually kind of touching them and, and having to ride them and that kind of thing. Finding that connection in a different way is, is important for tourism sites. You actually mentioned several interesting things. First one, it's really forbidden now to ride elephants and to use them for tourism and shows. In Angkor Wat. Ah, in Angkor Wat only, yes. not around yes. Cambodia. Yes, not around Cambodia, unfortunately. Okay, that's a strange move, no? Like you do it in one part, but you don't do it everywhere. Oh, it's an experiment yes, that I, I think, think yeah. to expand. I hope so. I hope so. Unfortunately, yeah, there's not much laws for animal welfare yet in Cambodia. But that was a really good move, especially to change people's opinions that are keeping elephants in, Cap in Cambodia as well. Yeah. Let's say it uh, explicitly that uh, riding elephants is a bad thing for them. Maybe you can expand on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good for them. Like we ride horses, but we've bred horses for hundreds of years to have strong backs to be able to carry people. Elephants are not domesticated. They're uh, usually first or second generation in captivity, and that is all they've usually taken from the wild. So they're not bred to have strong backs. And have you ever seen an elephant carry anything on its back in the wild? No, it doesn't happen. The other thing is that usually when they're being ridden, they're not being treated in the best way. So they usually worked quite hard. Uh, they're usually not given water when they want water. They're usually not provided shade when they need shade. Often, uh, if they get any wounds on their feet, they're not allowed to rest because if they're resting, they're not earning money. Elephants have to naturally to protect their skin from the sun and insects, they throw the sand and the dirt on themselves. So if there's people riding them, the mahout, the elephant keeper, is called a mahout, he or she won't allow the elephant to throw the sand on themselves. So not only are they carrying people, but they're also their skin is exposed to the sun. Um, so they obviously get also getting skin damage from the sun as well. Additionally, they're usually using negative reinforcement or negative association with the elephants uh, to train the elephants. So bull hook to train the elephants to get them to do what they want them to do basically causing the elephant pain if they're doing the wrong thing or if they want the elephant to do something different. They're usually using a bull hook, which is not very friendly uh, at all for the elephant. One thing which I learned, which is really fascinating, the elephants are like humans in uh, several ways. They have a very long uh, reproduction period. It's, uh, what, 22 yep. months? 22 months. Yeah. 
Yes. Indeed. And then uh, it takes, uh, what, six or eight years for an elephant to become independent from their mothers? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And, and for this reason, actually, those who keep elements to make money from tourism or elephant riding, they're not allowing elephants actually to reproduce, which also leads yep. to the uh, reduction in the elephant uh, it's easier for them to poach the elephant from the wild than breed a new one, basically, because then you also risk getting a male elephant, which are a lot harder to use around people because of their temperament. Yeah, Laos was known as a country of million elephants, and now there are only yes. about 800 left, and half of them are still in captivity. It's, wow. uh, uh, it's terrible. Elephants, they live as a family, and so when they're in captivity, mm. they actually kept separate, so they don't develop this yeah. uh, community sense. And even after we like, free them and put them together with other elements, they completely uh, lost already the uh, habit of uh, interacting with other elephants. Yeah, they're really, really intelligent. And they, if they've been with humans for a long time, they've worked out what, what humans want them to do. So, yeah, reintroducing them back to elephants after you know, they can be working for 50 years, putting them back with elephants. Yeah, it must be a big adjustment for them to figure out how to be an elephant with elephants again, yeah. rather than an elephant with humans. Yeah. And yeah. elephants, they live for something like 70 years, 70, 80 years. Yeah, 70 to 80 years. Yeah. yeah, so it's a really long life. So we can understand why people use it for, because it's a long life labor force for free. Or well, previously for free when they could just let them eat from yes. the forest. And okay, now they're not allowed, right, in Cambodia. Like this is forbidden to take an elephant from the forest. Yes, yes. Uh, is it true uh, everywhere around Southeast Asia? Do you know? I think... I think so, yes, I would believe so. Because elephants are such majestic animals and they're really, really rooted in the history of Southeast Asia, I think there's usually whole separate laws for elephants on top of the wildlife laws in countries. Why is it so expensive to visit conservation centres? Yeah, great question. So uh, I guess basically conservation is expensive. If you want uh, that good experience, if I relate it directly to the tour that I operate, uh, our tour fundraises $200,000 per year uh, for the care of the animals at Phnom Tamao. That's only a third of the funds needed for the animals and the keepers at Phnom Tamao. Um, so while it's a huge amount of money, it's, it's still uh, just a third of the funds needed. So for the money from tourism, is really, really valuable because it's unrestricted funding. So a lot of the money that we get, so the other kind of $400,000 that we need for the animals at Phnom Tamao is fundraised through grants and donors. Uh, all of the grant money is tied up very specifically, almost to the dollar, on what we have to spend it on before we even get the money. So we have to, to apply for the grant, we have to do a budget, we have to say we're going to spend this much on carrots and this much on bananas and this much on wages. So it's not flexible at all. The money from tourism is really valuable even more for that reason because it's not tied into anything. After we've taken the guests on tour, 
after that, all the money we've got left, we can use it for whatever we need to. So, for example, if an animal gets sick unexpectedly, or if bull elephant Sakor decides to break out of his enclosure again, we've got money there already, which we can reach into and repair the enclosure or pay for um, medicine, veterinary treatment, extra care that the animal needs without having to worry about going back to the grant, the people that have given us the grant and say, oh, sorry, we had to change this, or sorry, we had to change this. It's, it's really important in that way that it's flexible funding. Also, the most conservation experiences will be small groups of people, so they're more exclusive. So the experience for the guests is, is just unforgettable and it's really, really incredible. Um, so it makes it really good value. If we were to make it cheaper, we would have to have more guests, which implements the guest experience and also the, the safety and welfare of the animals as well. And I think that is relatable to other conservation uh, experiences as well. So Jahu, the ones I've said before, Jahu, Kulen, Elephant Nature Park in Thailand as well. They're all at the higher price point because of those reasons. I can confirm that th this experience is really worth it. Actually, during my trip in Southeast Asia, I visited uh, the Wildlife Islands uh, Rescue Center and uh, it was really an amazing experience. So uh, I totally confirm that it's, it's worth money spent. Uh, and uh, you even actually feel that it's more worse when you know that this money goes to save the animals and to provide them with a better life and a chance to get into the wildlife again. Thank you. And yeah, thank you for coming. And uh, I, I just wanted to expand a little bit more on the main cost. So uh, you did say that uh, uh, it is expensive, actually. It's very costly to do this wildlife uh, protection and conservation. Uh, but so what are the main costs? Why it's so costly? And actually, I think the other uh, important aspect is that uh, this is an activity that doesn't bring money by itself because uh, there is nothing you can earn money with. The, the animals don't pay you for being rescued. We, we don't send the elephants out for riding. No. <laughs> so the, the, then the, there are only two sources, is tourists and donors. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, maybe if you yeah. can tell more about the costs, why this is so expensive. So the costs I spoke about before, they, they are just for feeding and looking after the animals that are rescued. That's not even including the cost of the rescue team, the cost of all the, the rangers in the forest. Um, people's wages cost money, obviously. Feeding the animals costs a lot of money. It costs us $30 a day per elephant, $30 a day for the tiger. And those are costs that are ongoing. We can't, we can't make an elephant redundant we we have to look after them that's that's it I think the medicine and is the other uh, category no like these are the three biggest uh, from what you're from you yeah. it's the actually it's salaries to people and uh, of course you yeah. want to provide the, the the living the good salary to people who work to protect the animals exactly, so uh, exactly. it's a skill exactly job. yeah then feeding animals this is the second and then the medicine no? yeah yeah, exactly. So treating all the animals that come in um, if they have injuries and things like that and giving them specialist care that they need. And who are usually the donors? Like who are usually your donors? So we have grants. We also have grants from Disney, zoos in the West. 
Singapore Zoo. And then we have a few kind of family foundations and other people that have been donating for quite a long time that are just kind of um, philanthropists and who really just believe in the work that we do. Those ones tend to be really, really good. They they tend to just trust what we do and, and give the money and say, here mm-hmm. you go, you can use that. But it depends, yeah, it depends on the, the donor. Yeah. Cambodian government, uh, does it provide any money? Nantamau, the whole land is owned and run by the government. So they provide wages to some of the keepers. They provide some of the food as well. Uh, and they do pay for six vets as well. So, yeah, there is a lot of uh, contribution from the government too. So you are also active in fundraising campaigns. Who do you target and how do you convince people to contribute? So on the tour, it's easy because the animals are in front of the people. You know, they, they, they hear the animal stories like yourself. You hear the incredible stories and what the animals have been through and the impacts of the pressures on the wildlife in Cambodia. And that's easy to make that connection. One of my online fundraising campaigns last year, no, not last year, two years ago, um, I ran 38 kilometers around Phnom Tamau because that's the distance from Phnom Penh to Phnom Tamau. And we were fundraising for a new food truck to bring the food from Phnom Penh to Phnom Tamau. We then did the same thing. The animal stories, just they, they connect people, they get people involved. We did live streams on social media every four hours for, my, for the time that I was running, um, but also to show people stories of all the different animals at the park. So featuring the elephants, featuring the primates. Yeah, the, the animal stories just say it all. And if people come on a tour, Uh, can they support the uh, Wildlife Alliance uh, in other ways? Yeah, so we have um, sponsorship programs uh, that you can view through our website. Uh, we have nine uh, individual animals there from nine different species, uh, each with their own rescue story, um, which is really, really Uh, important you guys can get a connection with the animal and you can pick your favorite animal or you can pick the favorite animal of somebody to gift it to um, once you've signed up as a sponsor the sponsor costs five ten uh, or twenty dollars per month um, you will receive a welcome pack that includes a certificate uh, a fact file a high quality image of the animal uh, and also our annual report and our most recent newsletter from our director. Um, after that, you will also receive quarterly updates about the animal and what they're getting up to. So sometimes it won't be to do with the, the specific animal necessarily, but their kind of species specifics. If there's something exciting going on elsewhere in the project, we'll talk about that. And you'll kind of be the first ones to know about what happens if, you, if you're uh, an animal sponsor. Um, we also have a virtual gift shop. So if you are interested in supporting Wildlife Alliance and you need to buy a gift for somebody, perhaps somebody who you think has everything already, um, you can buy, you can kind of sponsor enrichment items or vaccines for our big cats or supplies for our baby animals in the nursery. You can sponsor those for our animals and we'll send you a lovely certificate to give to the, the giftee as a, as a thank you um, for that. Do you also share videos with these animals? Like the ones that are adopted or sponsored? 
Yes, so sometimes we include um, videos of the animals for the sponsorship updates, but the best way to get uh, exclusive video updates from our animals is through our Patreon channel. Okay, you have a Patreon channel? Our Patreon channel has levels from $3 a month up to $50 a month. On those different levels, you get different levels of, of things. So for the $3 a month, you get a photo every week of our animals. The $6 a month has a whole series of um, educational activities for children based on different species of animals. And then the $15 and $50 levels will get exclusive videos and personalized messages every now and then um, to say thank you for your support. But the videos are weekly, so it's really, really cool to see the videos there and get behind-the-scenes look at the animals and, and what goes on in the rescue center if you can't make it to Cambodia. And that's three years now. So if you sign up now, you get already three years of content to look at as soon as you sign up, as well as what comes weekly after you sign up. Very, very nice. Do you have many people who are sponsors uh, or who are uh, part of your Patreon program? Uh, yeah, on the Patreon, we have around 40 sponsors per month at the moment. Um So it's quite a nice little community there for you to join. Um, on the animal sponsorship side, we have around 200 monthly sponsors of the animals. Um, and some of the anim some of the sponsors have been sponsoring, I think, Chook's longest sponsor is seven years. So they've been around for a while. They're loyal sponsors. And yeah, it's a nice community to be part of. What is about the YouTube video about animals? Does it help or does it hurt? Both. I think it, it basically depends on the intent of the video creator. So there are a lot of conservation um, organizations making great educational videos on YouTube. There are really cool wildlife advocates making educational videos on YouTube and social media. Again, it's about that connection with nature. People don't care about what they don't know about right so getting people involved and teaching people about the obscure species of frog in Cambodia for example get people involved in that um, is is really really cool and that benefits conservation a lot um, but then you also have the people online who are making kind of abusive animal videos we've had to rescue a lot of monkeys from uh, youtubers who are filming them to make money on YouTube to make profit on YouTube basically and they are not doing that very nice things to the animals to make them uh, get more views to, to make the video go viral basically other ones like children rescue dog from a snake video that one went viral a couple of years ago if you looked at it with a critical brain you would realize that the children put the snake on the dog to start with And then they, they were the ones taking it off as well. But the video went viral and they, they must have got a lot of money from that because uh, it went viral and people believed it. Yeah. And that is detrimental as well because other people think they can do the same thing. So then they go and poach the animals from the wild. If people see someone playing with a cute monkey on a video, they think, oh, I can do that. That would be so cute if I had a monkey running around my house. Obviously, they don't show how much it smells or how noisy they are or actually that they are quite hard to look after and often get sick and pass away. But it causes the demand for poaching from the wild. 
so that is detrimental to conservation most things there's two sides yeah, of the well it's uh, finally it's just a tool right so you can use it either for good yes. or for bad just want to say a bit about what instagram have done to try to stop people posting about wildlife as pets and things like that so there was a lot of uh, sloth selfies happening in south america and uh, also gibbon selfies happening in thailand so if you uh, go to put up a post on instagram with the hashtag sloth selfie or hashtag gibbon selfie that will then pop up with a warning uh, from instagram explaining that by posting this picture you're encouraging the poaching of wildlife from the forest so it's really really good that instagram have actually implemented that i think that was in conjunction with the national geographic Um, they are trying because of course if you see that selfie with the gibbon in thailand you want to go to thailand and get your own selfie with the gibbon but then more the gibbon can only be used for like three years until it's until it's too old and dangerous then they need to go and poach another one from the wild and to poach a a baby gibbon from the wild you have to kill the mum so it it spirals like that so just one photo feels harmless but it can cause a lot of damage yeah Actually, it's, it's interesting. It, it made me think about the uh, anti-smoking campaign. So you buy a, a pack of cigarettes and you see all the cancer of lungs, etc. And so like you have a photo of Gibbon and then, and then you have uh, the whole story of how animals were killed and how uh, the, uh, yeah. bad the problem is. I think, yeah, I think it will help. Um, what is your favorite animal? Oh, yeah, good question. Uh, in Cambodia, my favorite animal is the binturong, which is a bear cat, if you know a bear cat. Um, it's in the same family as um, civets. Do you know civets? Yeah, actually, I googled it before, <laughs> before talking to oh, you. Okay. So. <laughs> I know what this animal is now, but I didn't know. I've never heard before. So, uh, so it's actually really cute, okay, especially yeah. when you see how it yeah, has the like, bare face and then his line is yeah. a cat. It's so funny. Yeah. I find them really goofy, actually, when you look on YouTube. Uh, if you Google them, the, the pictures are not flattering, I don't think. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they're nocturnal species, uh, about the size of a medium dog. Um, they've got a really long prehensile tail. They're one of the only non-primate mammal species with a prehensile tail. That means that they can use it as kind of a fifth limb. So it helps them to climb because they spend a lot of time climbing in the trees. Um, they eat Uh, fruit and insects and meat as well and they're really really important in the forest for spreading seeds around in their Mm -hmm. poop so they eat the fruit and they walk around the forest and then they they poop and there's a specific species of fig that actually doesn't germinate unless it's been through a bin so they are really really essential for the forest and, and we call them ecosystem engineers because they make a difference to the forest by planting more more trees. And they also smell like popcorn. <laughs> so they have a gland in the base of their tail, and, and it's exactly the same chemical as produced when you make popcorn. So they, they also smell really great, <laughs> which is unusual for animals usually. Yeah. 
<laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your personal story. So you're from England and you ended up somehow yeah. in Cambodia. <laughs> so how did you get from, <laughs> from one point to the other? Ever since I was little, I've always been interested in um, wildlife and animals. Um, I did a project on ecology when I was seven. I don't think many seven-year-olds even know what ecology means. Um, and I always wanted to be a ranger in the kind of national parks in England until I learned about wildlife in, across the world and was much more excited by wildlife in other countries than uh, in England. But I started to work in, in zoos and um, animal collections in England when I was about 16 and then went to uni to study animal biology So uh, until I was 21. And then I went back to the zoos and I was working as an animal keeper um, with all kinds of incredible species, uh, raccoons, coatis, uh, marmosets, fossa, zebras, all kinds of cool stuff had a bit of a, a bad experience with some management um, and ended up moving into hospitality and the, the waitressing basically did that for a bit and realized this, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Why am I doing this? Um, so quit that and went traveling in Southeast Asia um, spent six months traveling around Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, Laos and Thailand really really love the area i love the people uh, i love the the i call it the chaos but i mean it in a good way i love the chaos um i love that it's never boring had quit my job so i hadn't got anything to go back to england for really uh, i didn't really have a timeline or a deadline or my traveling apart from the money was running out um so when i followed wildlife alliance on facebook as i was coming through cambodia um I saw the job advertisement and I looked at it and I thought, oh, I can do that with my experience. Actually, it's kind of perfect for the role with waitressing as well, the zookeeping and the degree. Um, it's good for the, the tourism role. And applied purely because I, I would regret it if I didn't apply. I didn't think I would get it. Had the interview in Krabi in Thailand by WhatsApp call. We couldn't even do video because the internet was, was rubbish. Um, and then, yeah, got the job, moved here almost four years ago to the day. It, it's so cool you did this traveling for six months. So you were essentially backpacking, right, throughout South Yeah, yeah. Uh, what are your like, maybe biggest impressions or biggest uh, lessons because coming from England might have been really, really life-changing experience. You don't need to accumulate things. Um, you can just be happy with each other and, and experiencing every day and appreciate the little things in life. Even if something is, is a bit abnormal or a little bit kind of upside down. Oh, okay, cool. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's a different way of approaching it. Uh, I wouldn't have done that, but that's nice. Yeah, like there's... My main lesson is that the, the differences in life are what makes life amazing. So the different people, the different things you see, the different wildlife, and the fact that not everything is the same makes life really, really amazing. And we should appreciate that. I can, yeah. I can connect with what you said previously. 
I came to Southeast Asia and for the first maybe months, my main trouble was that everything was just so inefficient. And I understood that it was my main word, so it was my main paradigm, that things are supposed to be efficient. That's how we live here. Like, uh, it's about speed and efficiency. And you go to the Southeast yeah. Asia and nothing really works. But somehow it yeah, does. Yeah, it ends up working. But, uh, yeah. Well, sometimes yeah. you have to wait one hour and a half, sometimes two, sometimes you have to change your bus, <laughs> sometimes you have to go to another bus station. Like, it was not working, but <laughs> you just have to apply a completely different framework and completely different rules to how you yeah. see the life. Kind of, you just enjoy life as it goes. It doesn't have to be fast and efficient yeah. and the work as yeah. a watch. <laughs> so, and probably the last question. I imagine it's actually pretty difficult to work in an, in an organization like... Uh, uh, for protection of wildlife. So what keeps you motivated and what keeps you looking forward? I guess an easy one is, is the animals. I mean, you met Lucky. Uh, I get to go and meet Lucky the elephant and, and see her. And that connection I get every day when I go to visit them is, is really, really incredible. And that's really, really motivating. Um, days in the office are definitely a lot harder than than visiting the rescue centre, despite the rescue centre being sometimes 42 degrees and flies and mosquitoes. It's always, for me, a better place to be than the office. From a wider perspective, I really, really see the value in, in the work that we do as Wildlife Alliance, but also in conservation in general. I see the importance of the natural world and the natural resources as part of the larger balance of the planet. And I know that it's important for not only the future of humans, but also animals as well. The animals, the world is is changing really, really fast. And the importance of the natural world, specifically in the tropical belt, rainforests in the tropical belt are really important for regulating global weather systems. The value in the work that we do making a difference here is, is I guess, what motivates me uh, to carry on and the small wins we have to celebrate the small wins every day yeah especially for you you do have them every day so you see every yeah. new uh, saved elephant and that's a, a huge win every time yeah and what are the two most inspiring books that you have maybe about animals that yeah. you would recommend really people to it's a really read? it's a really good question I, I wrote down one, which is called uh, An Otter on My Arga. Could you repeat that? Um, an Otter on the Arga. So an Arga is kind of a, a wood-fired oven that I used to use in England. Um, it's a brand of, of wood-fired oven. And the book is by Rex Harper. And basically he operated a rescue centre in the south uh, southwest of England in Cornwall rescued over 50,000 animals over 50 years and it was the kind of official RSPCA center for Cornwall and his stories all about the animals and the 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 funny um personalities that come out of the animals and keeping an otter in his arga to keep warm you know because it was it, they rescued it in the winter and it was freezing all those different stories are, are really funny and inspiring for working with animals and in conservation as well. 
Thank you very much, Alicia. That was a very interesting discussion. I have learned many things about the wildlife conservation, and I hope the listeners as well. And I wish you all the best with, uh, with whatever you will be doing and uh, contributing to the preservation of the beautiful wildlife we have on the planet. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I have enjoyed this conversation with Alicia. Personally, I have not been aware of the danger to the wildlife posed by YouTube and Instagram activities. But this is certainly something to be aware and to discourage. As humans and tourists, we are responsible for the wildlife and we can contribute to its preservation and well-being. Next time you go on vacations, do not ride elephants and spread a word around to inform people not to do so. A wonderful option instead is to go to a conservation center for elephants, observe their behavior in nature and learn more about them. Make sure you choose an ethical center. How to do it? Here are three simple tips. First, see if this center has support or approval by no international organizations. Second, ask how animals are treated and what kind of activities are allowed. Sustainable centers will not allow any activities that are not natural for animals, like riding or making shows. Third, Ask and make sure the center contributes to the well-being of local communities by hiring local people as guides or cooks, for example. You may find that visiting the centers is expensive, but this money is worth spending, and I'm sure you will enjoy the time spent at the place. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring. With any questions, comments or suggestions, please email me at sccrowpodcast at gmail.com. Until next episode, stay green, stay inspired. Bye-bye.